for one, several of the kids that were here at VBS, uh, but especially, I got to give a quick shout out to uh, Kennedy and, where'd your brother go? He ditched, huh? <laughs> He's about to preach, I'm getting out of here. So, well, yeah, smart kid. <laughs> they were wearing the t-shirt and the, and the cape and stuff, and I just, glad y'all are here. It's good to see you. I'm sorry for singling you out, but I'm just excited that you're here. And you even brought your grandma along, right? It's great to see you too. And VBS is so special for a lot of us because of the impact that it had on us as kids and continuing to have that impact next generation to future generations. I love uh, just the idea of being able to enjoy a vacation Bible school together as a church family. So if you were able to be here uh, for part of that, we thank you, but uh, more so just as a church, thank you for putting this on. It's always a great, great uh, tool to learn more about, have our kids learn more about Christ and come together with their friends and a good time. We're going to continue our series this morning, of walking through the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, we've called the series For the Love of the Church, and I want to remind you why we called it that, because Paul uh, is writing this letter to Timothy, and Timothy is a young preacher, minister, in the city of Ephesus. The church is fairly well established there, um, but is going through a lot of some turmoil and some struggles. And uh, Timothy, as a young minister, Paul wants to write and encourage him to really fight the good fight, to stay strong, um, to not let uh, anyone despise you because you're young, things that he'll say throughout the letter. But it's really, the reason he's given this is because Paul loves the church so much that he wants this young minister to be successful for the Lord, not in his own right. He doesn't want Timothy's name to be, you know, praised by people. He wants the church to be what God intended it to be. This is why it's a great book for us to study and to learn and to grow because Paul's love for the church bleeds over into our situation as well. And what we're at now, we are still the church, the church that Paul loves, the church that Christ died for. We are Christ's church. And so in the first chapter, Paul dealt with one of the main things that uh, Timothy would be struggling with, uh, and it's, it's not with his own spirit, it's not with some of those things, or he'll get into that later. He is deal dealing with these outside forces that are trying to make demands of the way it should be in church. And Paul's reminding Timothy, hey, those false teachers, those that use the law the wrong way and promote legalism, that is not how it's done in the Lord's church. Lord's church does not go with legalism, nor do we go with permissivism. We don't go to the other side of this. We fight the good fight, as he will tell uh, Timothy later in, the, in, the, in that first chapter. We will fight the good fight, and that good fight is of faith, and, and that Christ came to save sinners, all of them. And when we get that right, maybe then we can start uh, dealing with some of these other questions and some of these other concerns that sometimes weigh us down, bog us down, and even divide us as a family. But we have to get the first thing right, otherwise division is probably the course. In chapter 2, Paul enters into a discussion that, to be honest, he deals with some issues that are even harder to deal with. Um, and Paul will even go where no man has ever gone before, or should, I think, 
to address uh, women's modesty. <laughs> Paul has fun with this. Um, I don't know if, we, if we'll have as much fun. We'll get there here in a little bit. But how he starts dealing with these issues is impressive because it's the only way to start. So if you would, go ahead and turn First Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, knowing what happens later on in this chapter, this is a great start. Because what Paul is telling Timothy, before you deal with the issues, or maybe even better, before you deal with the issues of people, the first thing that you need to do is pray. And this is not a prayer like many of us are tempted to pray. Whenever we're upset with someone and uh, and struggling through a situation, our prayer is often maybe not yours, but mine has been, oh Lord, I pray that they get what they deserve. Have you ever prayed that prayer or something like it? Yeah, some of you are lying. (laughs) Here's the thing. It may not be those exact words, but there's a level in which when we pray, we almost like, Lord, may your justice be swift. May it come. You know, may the leaders of this land, and we we have our wonderful ways of making it sound uber-religious. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. Because what Paul says is, is there are, well, three different kinds of prayer that he mentions. Notice these. Petitions. You know what a petition is? I mean, it's that, it's that request. It's that request, which we can usually put into that guy's, Lord, please be with them. It's the, it's the request, which is fine. The second one, intercession. That one's a little bit different. This is on the behalf of prayer. There is no way that you can have ill-filling or ill-thought to someone with intercessory prayer. You cannot have a negative thought towards them in inter- intercessory prayer. You might be able to through petition saying, all right, Lord, please you know, take care of them. But in intercession, I am taking their needs, their wants, what they're calling to the Lord for and bringing it to the Lord with them, for them, intercession. And the last one he mentions is prayers of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is is recognizing that God is still in charge of all of this, that God's the one that is here, and we should thank Him for being involved in our lives, thank Him for being involved in our communities, thank Him, even if things aren't going the way that we hoped it would be, we thank Him that He has not left us unaware and unprepared. These things, I think Paul is, is, is mentioning, saying prayer is, is that important. But notice, notice who he says you should pray for. Not, he pray, pray for everyone. And then he narrows the focus down. He says, especially kings and those who are in authority. Now, why would Paul say that? I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that this was not a... Um, that of exciting or a well-practiced uh, prayer for, for their culture and their time. Because you have to remember, what Paul is saying is you should pray for Caesar. This is Ephesus. 
Ephesus is one of the cities uh, that Rome ruled, Caesars ruled, and this is also a place that is beginning persecution upon the Christians. And Paul says, pray for those that could have this stopped. Pray for those who are really at the head of all the persecution you're dealing with. Not pray against them, pray for them. I'm going to take a wild guess that there were people within the Ephesus congregation that were, were not praying for the leaders, were not praying for Caesar and those in authority. Rather, they were probably working to, at every end that they could to stage some sort of coup and to, to revolt, and they were basing their thoughts on Scripture, because you can do that pretty easy, Right? And they were basing all this on Scripture, and Paul tells Timothy, hey, you need to tell those people, pray. Pray for those in authority. Pray for those who are over you. Pray for them, not at them, because the idea is, and Paul clarifies it, the reason being is because God wants everyone to be saved. This is already something that Paul had mentioned uh, there in the last chapter. He says, uh, this is a trustworthy saying that des deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He is co compounding that of saying, you want to know who that includes? Everybody. There is no one excluded of who God wants to save. Even if you don't think they're savable, they're beyond salvation, no one is. Maybe in your mind, which you've got to fix. Because in God's mind, everyone should be saved. Everyone should have the opportunity. And so you better be praying for the Caesars of this world. You better be praying for our leaders. You better be praying for those that you may not even like, even a little. You pray for them, though. Because if God, through his infinite grace, wants to send you to preach the good news so that they can be saved, you better be willing and ready to go. Because that's what our prayers do. Our prayers diffuse situations. When we're about to get into an argument and a fight with someone, our prayer for the situation, our prayer of asking God through our petitions, intercession, and thanksgiving diffuse the struggle that we might be bringing into it and allows us to have true reconciliation because that's how God's power can actually work. It reframes our thoughts. It changes our hearts. Prayer is powerful. And not just for the one you're praying for. It's powerful in you. Probably most especially in you. Paul then goes into this section of Scripture that's praising God and praising Christ. Uh, and uh, as good as that is, I'm going to fast forward to Paul's continued instruction on prayer. Verse 8, he continues his instruction here, and he says, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now I want to give a word of caution as we enter into this passage and, and the following uh, Scriptures. It is really easy to focus on the wrong things. 
whenever we enter passages like this, we can focus on some, we can, from our own baggage or from our own heritage, we can focus on certain aspects of Scripture and even miss the point that Paul is trying to make. So I just want to remind you of how some people have taken this passage that I believe misses the point. Although some good conversations, some people have taken this passage to mean that men are the only ones who can pray, period. You can read that passage and see that, right? That men are the only ones who can pray and should pray. Now, if that's true, that would have to be consistent all throughout Scripture. I believe that God's Spirit inspires all of, all of the written word of Scripture, and that through that, if that is true, that's going to be confirmed throughout the rest of Scripture. The problem is it's not confirmed. In fact, there are many places in Scripture where men and women are encouraged to pray. Here's the big one. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You know who that's addressed to? Back up a little bit. All Christians. So it can't be men are the only ones who can pray because women are included in the command to pray without ceasing. Or add to that, in Acts 1, uh, one of the first times that we see the disciples gathering together to pray, Acts 1.14 puts it this way, the disciples were devoting themselves to prayer, okay? Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In other words, in the first gathering of prayer, the men and women are gathering together. And so they're praying together. Or we can look at even more pointed in what Paul says in another one of his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives instructions for when women pray, they should have their head covered. Now, we're going to deal with 1 Corinthians 11 later in a, in a series, and I'll, I'll dive more into detail of chapters 11 through 14 about worship because there's a lot going on there. But know this, Paul is pretty clear whenever he says, when the women pray. So it can't mean that men are the only ones who can pray. So some have said, well, we get that. It's just that men are the only ones who can pray publicly. Women can pray in certain areas. They can pray maybe with their kids, or they can pray over in a ladies' class, or you know, something like that. But when there's a man around, he's got to pray. Now, I want you to notice where they back that up is some translations will say in the worship service. The Greek does not say that. That is an add-on. What the Greek says is everywhere. It's a compound word there, meaning, very simply, everywhere. In all places, no matter the situation, in everything, he's saying the men everywhere should pray. And so you can't say, well, it's just for the public worship service, because it's, it, he's saying everywhere. Now, going on with that, the, ne the next issue. Some people will focus, well, they got to do it with their hands lifted. A very legalistic reading of this passage means that men, the only appropriate prayer for, to God is men lifting their hands in prayer. The problem is, if I'm not mistaken, of our prayers this morning, I didn't see their hand raised. So in other words, they didn't count, right? That's a legalistic understanding of this. The point is not the men pray, 
everywhere or specific places or lifting up hands. Here's the point. What are the hands? They're holy. So often we miss that the point of this whole passage was that they should lift their holy hands in prayer because prayer is that important. See, holiness is something that we often struggle with, right? We're not very holy beings. We are sinful. That is our knee-jerk response in this world is to be sinful. But we should strive to not be that. We should strive for holiness. And the reason I believe this is the point is because Paul, at the end end of that passage, that verse, clarifies it without anger and dispute. He's telling the men, look, it's very easy for you to get caught up in the angers and disputes of this world. Don't believe me? Go watch any sporting event. It's very easy for the men to get caught up. Now, women can, can get this too, so you apply this to yourself. But it's very easy for us men to get caught up in those things. And what Paul, I believe, is saying here is that hands lifted in prayer, holy hands lifted in prayer, should not be hands that steal, that cheat, or that harm others. Hands that are lifted in prayer to God on Sunday should not should not be raised in anger on Monday. Holy hands lifted to worship on Sunday morning should not be raised to give an unsavory signal to someone who cuts you off in traffic on your way home. Because the stance that we have is important, not just in our prayers, but if we're supposed to pray without ceasing in our life. In other words, holiness is a big deal. Jesus will even confirm uh, this kind of idea of raising holy hands when you pray uh, without bitterness or without anger and disputes. He will confirm this kind of idea about giving your offerings or your gifts to the Lord. In in Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, he says, If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled with him before you give your gift. What he is saying is the stance in which we worship is hugely important to our worship because it is no small matter to pray to the divine. In fact, it's a very holy thing, a holy privilege to have the opportunity to pray. And so Paul says, lift holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. But he goes on. He goes on with this, and, and verse 9 continues, and he says this. Likewise, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Means what it says, says what it means. Let's do the invitation song and be done, right? <laughs> All right. There's got to be a reason Paul says this. Uh, We may not know the full situation in which Paul is talking. We have some guesses. Uh, By reading the context, reading between the lines, you can take some guesses about the background. So let's start there. First off, it seems pretty, pretty clear that in the church there at Ephesus, there were either men that weren't praying or they were praying and arguing with their brothers. They were in dispute. 
And then two, another thing that you can understand from here is that there's probably at least some women who are wearing some pretty shady things among the church. And we got to address this. I mean, we know how it is. Things that you don't think you would ever have to say to, to people, like common sense. What did I hear this past week in VBS? Uh, common sense isn't so common anymore. Amen to that. You have to explain a few things. And so, so Paul is going to explain a little bit. But to explain this, let's start back with the understanding of Ephesus. We need to understand the context with Paul's writing. city of Ephesus is like many of our cities today, full of sexual immorality. Now, it may not be the same kind of sexual immorality now as it was then, but believe me, full of sexual immorality where today people can go ahead and, and follow all of their lusts and the personal convenience of their own little phone or computer or whatever, in Ephesus, the way that this worked is you went down and worshipped the local god. Now, the local god in Ephesus was a goddess by the name of Artemis. Um, in fact, Paul will even, uh, this story in Acts, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, if you know that whole story while he's there and kind of gets run out of town. This whole city... Its whole infrastructure is around the worship of a god or goddess of fertility. I'll get more into this in following weeks as to what all this meant, but all of the priests in this local temple were female. And in the evenings, or actually most of the day, the female priests would go into town and they would adorn themselves with gold, with jewels, with uh, makeup, with the, all the latest fashions. And they would try to lure men to come with them back to the temple of Artemis to pay homage. You're reading between the lines here. To pay their dues to this God. And that was typical for the city of Ephesus. It's what you saw. It's what you were used to. Now, praise God that the gospel has been able to go and reach um, all, of, all these Gentiles. But whenever these Gentiles were come in, coming in, as it does with many of us, we bring our own baggage. We don't know all the rules coming into a worship service. We don't know what it's all supposed to look like, and so we just show up. That's great. But sometimes people show up, maybe not in the best way, and you've got to address that. So Paul says, you know how the priests, or priestesses at Ar uh, for Artemis Temple do it? That's not how it's going to happen here. It's not the way it's going to happen. You're not here to try to seduce the man. You're not here to try to, to run the show. You're here to be a part of God's church and what that means and what that looks like. So, again, if we take this as a legal, from a legalistic approach, does it mean that all the women today who are wearing jewelry, or some translations say have their hair in braids, are going against God's word? You know, some people have gone there. Said, yeah, it is. If you have nice clothes, if you have a ring on your finger, if you have all these things, then you are going against God's word. I'm not sure that's the case because we're also missing the point. The point is not whether or not women should be wearing uh, jewelry, pearls, fine clothes, or if their hair is done a certain way or not. The point is modesty. 
Now, a quick word about modesty. I've given countless lessons to uh, teenage girls and, and, and even boys about what modesty is and what it's not. I'll give you the quick version of modesty. Modesty isn't just about what you cover up or, or not. It's about what you're drawing attention to. You can be completely covered up and still be immodest because you're drawing attention to the wrong things. And so Paul is saying, look, whenever you come, what kind of attention, where are you drawing the attention? Let me ask you it this way, sisters, ladies in Christ, when you're getting ready to come to church on Sunday morning and you're trying to figure out what to wear, I'm totally stepping on toes and I know that. Believe me, I know that. I'm running out after this sermon, all right? What's your thoughts? What's the questions you have in your mind when you're getting ready? Does this make me look big? You may have other words. Does, does this look attractive on me? And maybe part of what's feeding that, because I don't think that's necessarily wrong in and of itself, but if what's feeding that is... Will other people notice me because of what I put on? I want to let you know that that, if that answer to that is yes, then that is immodest because you have drawn attention to the wrong thing. If you come to worship and you think, as you're coming to worship, you think, man, what can I wear today that most exemplifies a humble heart ready to worship God? That may change what you wear. Now, fellas, I've been picking on the ladies, but some of you, some of us, are just as bad. Because we stress over, you know, do these socks match the shirt? Or, you know, that may be your, my issue. It may not be yours. I don't know. But we stress over these things. And often the reason being is because we're worried about the wrong thing. What Paul is doing is he's using a cultural expression of, of this gold, pearls, expensive, expensive clothes to point to a timeless truth of modesty. It may not be immodest now to wear, like it was then, to wear gold jewels. Because gold jewels then were directly applicable to the priestess at Artemis Temple. Now, we don't see that. A lot of gold jewelry is applicable now to marriage. And ladies, I think that's a great thing to show that you are taken, that you are married. That's a great thing. So the same idea may not apply, but the overarching understanding of modesty, it sure does imply. Now, I'm not saying that all you know, culture dictates all the modesty. That's, that's another issue for another time. The thing that I want to close with is this understanding of how this all fits into the broader context of chapter 2, 1, all the way through uh, verse 10. And it happens in this word at the beginning of verse 9. Because verse 9 and 10 sound like they're just kind of, oh, I'll pick on the women for a little bit. He uses the word likewise. This is a connecting phrase. In the Greek, it's very evident that there's a connection between what has been previously said to what is being said now. And if that's the case, there's really two main options for what's being connected. One is when Paul says, this is what I say. I recommend, I say men should pray. I say women 
should be modest. That's one option. But I think the better option within the integrity of, the, uh, of that whole passage is that Paul is talking about a life of prayer. And he's saying the same, very similar messages to men and women. It's not just about the, the modesty. It's not just about lifting hands. His message is about holiness. That we should approach God in holiness. And for the men, he says, the way that that needs to work, whenever you go to pray, you need to lift up holy hands, holiness, without angering or without anger and disputes in your heart. Because those are things that we're pretty susceptible of, fellas. And for the women, when you approach God, when you come to his throne, your heart better be holy and it better be manifested in the way that you dress. And then as the verse continues, and in your good deeds. The actions that you do, the attitude that you have, men, in the dress and in your deeds, women. But all of it's within this context of holiness before God. Because he is holy. And whenever you approach him, whenever you open your heart to pray before the holy God, you better recognize his holiness. And you better be coming to him, seeking the holiness that he desires within you. However that looks for you, whatever that means, his holiness should be affecting your life, your dress, your deeds, your attitude, your actions. Everything about you should be changed because you want to be in prayer and conversation with the Holy Almighty. And Paul's trying to phrase and put all this together, saying that prayer to God is that important. It's not something we can just flippantly do. It's something that we can do all the time. But it's because of his grace, his mercy, and his holiness that we even have an avenue to pray to him at all. But thanks be to God for that avenue of prayer. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, there's so many times that we have our own agendas, that we have our own thoughts, we have our own ways, that we want to we pull something out, and Lord, may we just come to you. May we approach your throne, not because of how we look, not because of something amazing that we have done, but because of something that you have done in your holiness that you allow us to approach. Even in our sinfulness, as we strive to get rid of our sin and as we strive to be more like you, Lord, may we never quit. Lord, for some of us, it may be our anger that gets in the way of our holiness. For some of us, it may be the disputes or the struggles, the differences of opinions that we might have, and it gets in the way of our holiness. For others, it might be uh, the attracting to the wrong kind of things. Or maybe that we don't adorn ourselves with the good deeds in worship. Lord, I pray that nothing, nothing hinders us from coming to you, to approaching you in conversation and in prayer. Be with us, Lord. May we always approach your throne with the understanding of your holiness, knowing we are not 
as you've called us to be, but we are working to be there. By your grace, you have spanned that gap, that chasm that was between us. And we thank you for your grace, your love, and your mercy. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to walk in holiness in our prayers and in this life and understanding that it really does matter who we are, what we think, what we do, all the things that could diminish your holiness in us. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning I want to end just with this understanding is that there's a lot of us that whenever you hear the word, well, you should be holy to approach the holy God, we look at ourselves, we look at our lives, and we're like, I'm not there. I look at the sin in my life, and I'm like, I'm not really that holy. I want you to know it's not by your own power that you become holy. I want that to be stressed and that to be clear. It is by the power of Christ in you that can make you holy. And so this morning, if you don't have the Holy Spirit working in your life, if you don't have Christ in you, I want to provide that opportunity because you can't be holy and truly continue approaching His throne in prayer unless you have His Spirit in you. So this morning, if you're in need of making Christ your Lord and Savior, coming through the waters of baptism and giving away your old life to get the new kind of life of holiness, then we want to let you know this invitation is for you. But also, if you have any prayers, if you have any concerns that you need to be lifted up, whether with an elder or with one of the ministers or the congregation as a whole, would you let it be known? Come as we stand and as we sing.